First Peter chapter two. We'll begin with verse four. First Peter chapter two, verse four. As you're finding that, let me uh, encourage you to be prayerful over all of our men and women and boys and girls who are already out deer hunting. Pray that God will bring them back safely, and I'm sure they're tuned in right now. I'm positive they have those phones open in the, in the stand. I thought about praying that God wouldn't let any deer move between 9 a.m. and 11.30, but that was just meanness on my part, so I didn't. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. Coming to him, that is Jesus, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe... He is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light, who were once or who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So far in our study, we've seen Peter lay out the suffering and the reality of suffering, and in discussing how God's children deal with suffering, he's revealed God's grace and peace to us. He's revealed the living hope that is ours through Jesus Christ. He's shown us how to respond to that grace. He has emphasize the desire for God's word and today he's going to emphasize the benefits of our belief. He's going to bring out and draw out to these suffering saints the benefits that are theirs in Christ because of their genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. He's going to talk to these people who are experiencing trials and hardships and sufferings who would endure much more to come. The reality that they have received spiritual blessings through the Lord Jesus that are theirs regardless of what the world threw at them. He's going to remind them what the scriptures say in Ephesians 1-3 where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Peter's going to draw them to the point of remembering their spiritual blessing in the midst of trials and difficulties. And today, that is our goal, to see what the Holy Spirit had led Peter to remind these believers of, the immense blessing that is ours in Christ Jesus. So that's where we're going today. Let's see what Peter had to say in addressing these saints. His goal is to bring them to a remembrance, an understanding, an acknowledgement of the immense blessing found in Christ. But he doesn't start there. Verse 4, look where he starts. Coming to him. He starts with an explanation here of how you get to the point of coming to blessing. Coming to him. You see, spiritual blessing begins when we are coming to belief. That's where it all starts. Coming to belief. We need to understand what it means to come to belief. Belief 
that brings spiritual blessing, my friends, is more than a simple acknowledgement of reality. There are many people who acknowledge reality without a heartfelt encounter with that reality. Belief, as Peter is discussing it, belief, indeed, as the Bible discusses it, is much more than to simply acknowledge reality. Saving faith, true faith, it is more than to know Jesus is real. There are a lot of people who believe that Jesus is real. There are a lot of people who have this head knowledge, we call it, an intellectual acknowledgement of Jesus. But I want you to understand today that an intellectual acknowledgement of Jesus does not impart salvation. It does not give you eternal life, and it does not open up your life to the spiritual blessings that are yours in heavenly places. See, there are many people who believe in Jesus, but have not yielded to him as Lord and Savior. I can't tell you how many conversations I have with people, and this is what I hear. Oh, I'm a believer. I'm a believer. A believer in what? Oh, I believe Jesus is real. I, I believe in God. I'm a believer that the Bible's true. I'm a believer. Okay, you're a believer. Great. Have you come to this place of personally accepting Jesus? Well, now I'm a believer. Let's not go there. I just want you to know I'm a believer. I believe Jesus is real. I believe we celebrate Christmas because of Jesus. I believe Easter's about him rising from the dead. I'm a believer. Okay, great. Have you acknowledged your personal sin and responded personally to Jesus' call to repentance? Well, now, let's leave that out. I'm just a believer. We have a world full of believers. But coming to belief isn't just acknowledging reality. You see, James in chapter 2 tells us the demons do the same thing. James says, look, you acknowledge there's one God, well, you do well. The demons believe and they tremble. Demons believe that Jesus is real, but they've not, they have not been imparted with forgiveness or eternal life. They've not found redemption. They just believe in the reality. They acknowledge the reality of Jesus. They believe. And there are a lot of people in this world that fall in that same category. They're in the category of demons. They believe Jesus is real, but they've never had a personal encounter whereby they, through repentance, receive Jesus as the Lord of their life. Go out and try it and ask people, hey, are you a believer? In this community, you're going to find the majority of people say, yeah, I'm a believer. But then press them, believer in what? And I think you'll start to see what I'm talking about. You see, there are those who acknowledge the reality of Christ, but they acknowledge that reality without heartfelt repentance that leads them to yield before Jesus as Lord of their life. You see, I believe Joe Biden's president, but that doesn't mean I've yielded to him and follow him as my best friend. I believe Tom Brady is quarterback for the Tampa Bay Bucks, but that doesn't make me his best friend and we hang out. And there are a lot of people who believe Jesus is real, but they've never encountered him personally, nor do they have a personal relationship where they walk with him daily. You see, Peter says, coming to him. He's calling for a genuine belief, a saving faith, a true faith that is more than intellectual understanding, intellectual acknowledgement. 
what he's calling for is to genuinely recognize personal sin, the need for personal salvation, and to respond with a personal response to Jesus. You see, the gospel demands a personal response. It demands we personally confess Jesus as Lord. Not just believe He is. And so we have to understand, where do spiritual blessings stem from? Well, they stem from genuine belief. Coming to Him. Coming to Jesus. That's the expression of belief we need. To come to Jesus, to enter into a personal relationship, to gain salvation. That's the beginning of spiritual blessing. That's what Jesus taught. In fact, Jesus himself said, Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your souls. Jesus said, If you want treasure in heaven, come, follow me. Jesus said, let the little children come unto me and forbid them not for such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, whoever comes to me has a foundation on a solid rock. Jesus said, whoever comes to me will never hunger or thirst again. Jesus said, if anyone does thirst, let him come to me. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Come to me. You see, we come to Jesus in genuine belief. My friends, coming to Jesus is required more than mar marginal belief and head knowledge. I just saw a typo in my, in my thing. It threw me off. Is it on the screen? I'm embarrassed if it is. Coming to Jesus requires more than a marginal belief and head knowledge. At least the slide is right. A belief is not... A marginal belief, if it's a saving belief. A genuine faith is not just a head knowledge, an intellectual acknowledgement. We're called to come to Jesus. This is the willingness to fall before Him in total dependence, calling out to Him as the one, the only one, who can rescue us out of our hopeless condition. This is the expression of a contrite heart, calling out in desperation to Jesus. With this willingness to say, Jesus, I submit myself to your lordship. You reign over my heart. That's coming to Jesus. And so the beginning of spiritual blessing is coming in genuine belief. Not intellectual acknowledgement. Not saying, yeah, Jesus is real. But a personal response to the personal Savior where you personally meet him and yield to him as Lord. That's where this begins. But actually, Peter's going deeper. Coming to him, as used here in this text, is much more expansive than simply a saving knowledge, a saving experience. In fact, when you get into the depths of this text, what you find is the language used here infers a drawing near to Christ in an intimate and abiding fellowship. That's really what he's saying. I come to a saving knowledge of Christ and then I am coming to Christ continually in this intimate, abiding 
fellowship. Moment by moment throughout the day, I abide in the fellowship of Christ. That's coming to him. Remember, Peter is writing to born-again believers. Peter is already writing to those who have come to salvation. And he's saying, coming to Jesus, continually abiding in his intimate fellowship. That's what he's really referring to. See, we come to a saving knowledge of genuine belief... And then we continually come to abide in his presence continually and it produces spiritual blessings in heavenly places that are yours in Christ Jesus. You continually come and abide in his presence. That's what he's talking about. Intentionally seeking to remain in the presence of Christ. It's this idea that we maintain an ongoing abiding fellowship with Jesus. It's not that I met Jesus one day, I prayed for salvation, I put it in a box on a shelf, and I pull it down when I die. It's a transformational encounter with Christ that goes on day by day, moment by moment, as I abide in his presence and live my life with him by my side. It's an ongoing, abiding fellowship, a communion where we are close together continually. That's what he's calling for here. Peter wants to expound upon the blessings that belong to the saints, but he says to get there, to experience that, to be able to acknowledge that, you have to abide in a continual fellowship with Christ moment by moment. These blessings are yours because of God's grace, because of his abundant mercy. They're imparted to you because of genuine faith, but to be able to acknowledge them, to be able to experience them, you must abide continually in Christ. In speaking of verse 4, John MacArthur said this, For Peter, the word implied the movement of the entire inner person into the experience of the intimate and ongoing communion with Christ. In other words, I didn't purchase my ticket on the J train just to get into heaven. I didn't get my fire insurance policy and I hope he sees me through one day. I encountered the living Savior who transformed my heart and now I abide with him continually, moment by moment, day by day. I live in his presence. I walk in his presence. I enjoy his presence. Not a casual belief. Not a marginal belief. A life-transforming belief that has made me the friend of Jesus. Go back and look at that upper room discourse. Jesus at one point looks at his disciples and he says... I no longer call you my students. I no longer call you servants. I no longer call you disciples. Here's what I call you. I call you my friends. An intimate, abiding friendship with Christ. We're called to come to Christ and experience this life transformational fellowship with him. It starts at the point of salvation. It carries out as we live our earthly life. It continues on throughout eternity. That's what he's calling for here. Coming to belief. Coming to belief. Now let's pull this apart just a little bit further. Who's he talking about? Well, we know it's Jesus, but look how he describes Jesus here. Coming to who? He says, coming to the living stone. Coming to the chief cornerstone. You see that in verse 4? You see it in verse 7? We must come to the living stone. We must come in faith and build our faith upon the chief cornerstone. You see, Jesus is the precious, choice, one-of-a-kind cornerstone that our individual faith must be built upon and the workings of the church must be established upon. Jesus is that chief cornerstone that your faith must be grounded and founded upon. 
Peter says he's the living stone. In Romans 6, 9, the Bible says Jesus being raised from the dead dies no more. He is alive now. He's alive forevermore. He is the living Savior. And because he's the living Savior, he imparts life to those who come to him. You realize only a living Savior can give you life. If your Savior is not alive, then you don't have a living faith. But Jesus is the living stone. He's the living Savior. He's the source of spiritual life. The Bible here calls him the precious stone, the choice stone, the chosen one by God. He's precious and chosen by the Father because Jesus is perfect. He's holy. Only he could meet the holy requirements for redemption. Only he could meet the requirements for sacrificial atonement. Only he could offer the sacrifice that would meet God's high demand for sin to be forgiven. He's precious. He's choice. He's one of a kind. He's selected by God the Father for that purpose. That's his earthly ministry. He is the cornerstone of our faith. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of a God, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Jesus Christ himself being your chief cornerstone. He is the chief cornerstone. He's the foundation of your faith. That's who you come to. Jesus. He is the special cornerstone of God's redemptive plan. Laid in Zion, the scripture said. He was laid in Israel, laid in the holy nation, laid upon the holy mountain, laid in the holy city, that he might die upon the cross, that he might be buried in the third day, rise again, the living stone, the chief cornerstone, the author and finisher of our salvation, Jesus, is building the spiritual house. He's the foundation of that house, the foundation of your faith. You see, Peter says, you come to believe in the right one, and that is Jesus. The soundness of your faith, the certainty of your salvation rests upon the reality that Jesus is the chief cornerstone of God's redemptive plan. If your faith is coupled with anything else than Jesus, your faith is shaky and not on a solid foundation. Your faith must be in Jesus and Jesus alone. Faith that is not built upon him is not sound, it's not solid. A church that will minister upon some other foundation does not minister in a way that is sound or solid. It must be Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone. Now knowing this, you're like, okay, I'm coming to genuine faith. I'm encountering Jesus. I'm building my faith upon him. I'm ministering in him. Great. But there's a very sad statement to me it's repeated twice in verse 4 and verse 7. We find that many have rejected this chief cornerstone. In verse 4, he's rejected by men. In verse 7, he's rejected by the builders. This precious choice, one of a kind, Lamb of God, the one who has taken away the sin of the world, the only one who offers hope of redemption, the only one that faith can be built upon, is rejected by men. He was rejected by the Jews who refused to accept him as Messiah because he did not fit their idea of who the Messiah should be, the kingdom he should establish. And they rejected him in unbelief. Rejected still today by sinful men 
who refuse to accept the truth of God's word. Those who simply will not believe because they will not accept the truth and they reject the only one who can establish a solid eternal faith that will last in heaven. Many reject him still today. Many do not want a Messiah that requires personal responsibility for sin. We live in a world where you set your own reality, your own truth, and I don't want a Messiah that makes me be responsible for my lifestyle and my sin. So I'll just reject him. Many reject Jesus because they want a Messiah who allows them to come to God on their own terms. They don't want the only way, the only truth, the only life. They want the Messiah on their terms. I'll approach God the way I want to approach God. Our one God that we can pursue how we want to and we'll all get there. So I'll define the Messiah how I want and I'll reject Jesus as the Bible states. Many people reject Jesus simply because, well, if there is no Messiah, then there is no judgment and I don't have to worry about sin. And so let's just reject him outright. What makes this statement so sad, my friends, is that we read there in verse 8 that those who reject, Jesus becomes a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed what that tells us is that those who reject Christ eventually trip over him in their own efforts for self-realization, self-fulfillment, inward peace, seeking their own path. They end up tripping over him because what they find is this. They trip over the rock who they'll find one day sitting on the throne of judgment as they're crushed under the judgment. They face eternal judgment, the scripture says here, because they're disobedient to the word. What is that word? It's the gospel. The Apostle Paul time and again describes it this way. Those who are disobedient to the gospel suffer the wrath of God. What's it mean to be disobedient to the gospel? To reject Jesus, not to accept God on his terms. To ignore the reality that the Bible tells you if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised you from the dead, you will be saved. But it's all Jesus and it's only Jesus. Those who are disobedient to the gospel, those who refuse the gospel, those who reject Jesus face judgment. In fact, those of you who have NASB Bibles there notice that it has this phrase, and to this doom they are appointed. Because of their disobedience to the gospel, because of their rejection of Christ, they are appointed to eternal doom. That just sounds bad, doesn't it? To be doomed throughout eternity because you reject the chief cornerstone of God's redemptive plan. So Peter here lays it all out very plainly. He's speaking to believers, but he wants to make the case. Now listen, here's genuine faith, the faith you've come to. Here's the intimate, ongoing, abiding fellowship with Christ you're called to have. But sadly, those who reject are doomed never to know any spiritual blessing. But then Peter moves on to what he really wants to talk about. And that's where we want to focus in today. He moves on from coming to belief to counting your blessing. So let's just look at that a little bit. Counting your blessings. Here in this text, Peter is going to list several 
spiritual blessings that are imparted because of genuine belief, blessings that belong to these people regardless of the difficulties, the trials, and the hardships they have encountered. Spiritual blessings that the circumstances of the world cannot rob from them. Spiritual blessings that will impart peace to their hearts, will guard their minds to the peace of God. Spiritual blessings that, going back to chapter 1, will bring them great rejoicing and a joy inexpressible that's full of glory. Spiritual blessings that come because of belief. We're going to pick up the pace. Here we go. The first one, verse 5. This first spiritual blessing, being living stones. That's your first spiritual blessing that comes from genuine belief. Being living stones. You see, we are imparted with life from Jesus, life that cannot be taken away, life that cannot be changed. You're a living stone. I've seen a lot of stones. I've thrown a lot of stones. You chunk stones out into the river. You try to skip stones across the lake. Your little brother picks up a stone and you dunk, duck, you know, because you know what he does with rocks. But here, Jesus makes you a living stone, gives you life that is rock solid, that is dependable, that is eternal, that cannot go away. Regardless of the circumstances around you, you need to recognize you are blessed to have spiritual life through Christ that cannot change. It is yours. It is solid. It's based upon the chief cornerstone. It's imparted by Christ. Your eternal life rests in Him. The Bible teaches that we share in the sufferings of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Our life is vested in who Jesus is. It doesn't even depend on us. When we come to faith in Christ, He imparts spiritual life because of who He is. And we can't even monkey that up. He imparts that spiritual life, and it's there. It's guaranteed. It's sealed by the Holy Spirit. In fact... All aspects of spiritual life are vested in Jesus. Every aspect of it. He has granted us access to life and to power in Him, in our relationship to Him. That's how we access life and power. You go back to John 15, where Jesus describes Himself as the true vine. He calls us the branches, and He says, Listen, the branch that is in the vine is fed life from the vine, is empowered by the vine to be fruitful. And that's what He says to you. You are imparted with spiritual life through Christ because of your relationship with Him. It is His life flowing in you. It is the power of Christ through you that enables you to be fruitful in life, to be, to be productive in life. You're like that, the uh, psalmist there in the first psalm who's rooted deep in God's Word. It says you're like a tree planted by the rivers of water and you, your leaves do not wither. You always bear fruit. Whatever you do prospers. That's the power of the life of Christ in you and through you because you're grafted into Him as the true vine. You have life in Jesus and it is power of Him in you and through you. So listen, Peter says, look, life gets difficult, but you've been imparted with a spiritual blessing because of your belief that will not change. You have life and power in Christ. That is yours. It is always yours. Peter goes on, though. Still in verse 5, he mentions this. A spiritual blessing you have through Christ is being a spiritual house. Being a spiritual house. He says there you're being built up a spiritual house. Now when you think about the spiritual house, if you go back to the Old Testament, you remember that in the Old Testament, God gave His people the tabernacle as they were wandering through the wilderness, and then He burdened David's heart to gather construction materials and allowed King Solomon to actually build a brick-and-mortar physical temple 
That was the house of God. It was the dwelling place of God's presence among men. He had a physical house for His presence among the world. Well, my friends, that's not how operates, or God operates anymore. You see, now you are the spiritual temple of God's presence. You are now the spiritual house that God indwells. God's presence in this world is through you as His presence indwells you through the form of the Holy Spirit. In fact, 2 Corinthians 6 says your body is the temple of God's presence. As a born-again believer, someone who's come to genuine faith, you are imparted with the indwelling of Christ, His Spirit within you. You are His presence in this world. You have His presence abiding with you. You know what that means? That you have a continual communion with God regardless of the circumstances of the world. His presence is with you. You don't have to run to the temple to experience God's presence. His presence is with you. Sometimes circumstances draws our attention away. Sometimes trials make us focus in other areas. But the reality is, you're a spiritual house. You've got the indwelling of God's Spirit within you. You have His presence with you no matter what. That can't be taken away. You've been called to be the presence of Jesus in this world as He indwells you. You've been called to be a part of the body of Christ universally, locally, a smaller body of Christ. You are a part of this spiritual house, but ultimately you are the spiritual house. That's a spiritual blessing you have through faith. Peter goes on. Peter goes on. The next thing he says, you have a spiritual blessing through genuine belief, being a holy and royal priest. Now you see that there in verses 5 and verses 9. Verses 5 and 9. You're called a holy priest in one, and you're called to be a part of the royal priesthood in the other. Here is a spiritual blessing that comes from genuine belief that cannot be undone. Your faith in Jesus cleanses you from sin and positions you in a very special office. You assume the office of holy priest. You take on the office of a royal priest. You are called into this office because of faith in Jesus. It is an office that is unchanging and cannot be taken away from you. What it means is you serve the king and have direct access to the king at all times. You, as a priest, can approach God and you can approach Him freely on your own and with confidence. You need no one to take your needs to your Lord. You go before the Lord yourself. You have access to Him. You're a priest in the kingdom of God. You're a priest through faith. And so you have direct access to the Creator and Sustainer of the world. You have direct access to the One who's above all the one who is all, the one who can do all. You have direct access at all times. That is yours. That's a spiritual blessing that cannot be taken away. Sometimes we allow life and the turmoil of life to kind of cloud our minds and we forget, wait a minute, I have direct access to the one who said, let there be, and there was. The one who has direct access who died and had the power to take up life again. I have direct access to God Himself. And I can come boldly. I can come with confidence. I am free to come before Him. 
It's called the priesthood of the believer. Through the work of Christ, you have direct access to God. That doesn't change. That's a spiritual blessing that is yours. And you're called here to be part of the royal priesthood. Royal priests were the ones who served the royal authority. And they functioned with royal authority. They served and functioned in the world with a degree of authority vested in them by the royalty they served. In other words, you are a royal priest of the Most High King, Jesus Christ, and you serve in this world with His authority. You have authority in this world as you live for Christ. You have authority. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 6 says. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? You have royal authority vested in you as you live your life for Christ. The problem is we as Christians have been like, Ooh, don't want to offend anybody. Oh, I just can't say that. Oh, I can't do that. When you should just be standing up and saying, hey, I've got royal authority. I work for the king of kings. Here's how it is. Here's how the cow eats the cabbage. Let me just tell you. But we don't. Can I tell you today that you are vested with royal authority? You're a part of a royal priesthood. Jesus, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the one who will establish his kingdom eternally forever. That's who you're a priest for, and you have his authority to serve him. You can serve in power and authority. That's a spiritual blessing you have, and it doesn't change regardless of the circumstances of life. But Peter doesn't stop there. I told you a couple weeks ago, he's a long-winded preacher. Verse 9, he says this. Another blessing you have of genuine faith, of belief, is being a chosen generation. Being a chosen generation. In verse 8, we read that those who reject Jesus are doomed, but those who come to him are welcomed in as God's special people. Through genuine belief, you are a special person in God's kingdom. You are a part of God's economy. You are what the Bible would call a spiritually elect person through Christ. You belong to Him. You are a citizen of God's kingdom. You're a citizen of heaven. When you came to a genuine saving belief in Jesus, you were given citizenship in heaven. And that does not change. It cannot be taken away. The reality is, any of us here who are genuinely born-again believers... Well, we're just kind of passing through. We're on foreign territory. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims. Our citizenship is in heaven. The kingdom to which we belong is not of this world. We're just here for a while. Because a spiritual blessing we have is being a chosen generation, a citizen of heaven. That doesn't change. No matter what circumstances throw at you, that is your reality. It's very interesting that the way Peter words that ties back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. There in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God, speaking of the nation of Israel, says, these people will be my chosen people. 
They will be my special people. I will have a special covenant, a special relationship with these people. That's the same terminology Peter uses here. What he's saying is through Christ, God looks at us and says, you are part of my special chosen people. I have selected you to have a special relationship with me. You're a chosen generation. You were once alienated. You weren't even a people. But now you've attained mercy and become my people. That's what verse 10 is referring to there. God, through his mercy, has called us out of spiritual darkness and brought us into his marvelous light to be one of his special people. You're one of God's covenant people if you've come to genuine faith in Christ. Peter keeps going. He says there's another blessing that comes from your belief. Still in verse 9, he says you're a holy nation. A holy nation. That is, we are separated by Christ unto Christ to be a holy nation for Christ in this sinful world. Holy there means to be separate and set apart. Nation refers to a specific group. We are a part of a group that has been set aside by Christ, set apart as his own special people to have fellowship with him and serve his kingdom while we're here. In fact, some of your versions there in verse 9 may have used this phrase, a people for his own possession. That's a good interpretation of that. A people for his own possession. It refers us back to the price paid for us. The high price paid for us. We will not belabor that. We did that a few weeks ago. But the reality is you have been acquired at a great price. The blood of Jesus Christ. The price required to redeem us. That is to purchase us from the slavery of sin. We are loved and precious in the sight of God so much so that he paid the highest price that could be paid that we might become his own possession. Titus chapter 2 describes this better than I can say it. Listen to what he says there. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That sums it up. What does it mean to be a holy nation? It means Jesus purchased you, purified you, set you aside to serve him in a sinful world. And that doesn't change regardless of the circumstances of life, trials, or hardships that befall you. You are a specially purchased, set-aside saint because Jesus loves you that much. That's your reality today. You see, there are spiritual blessings that belong to you because you have a genuine belief in Jesus. And those spiritual blessings don't change. Peter's writing to people who are enduring hardship and trial. And he says, you know what? God wants you to know his grace and his peace. He wants you to rejoice. He wants you to know joy that's inexpressible. And here's how you do it. You remember the spiritual blessings that are yours. You remember that you're a living stone. 
You remember you're a spiritual house. You remember you're a royal priest, part of a holy priesthood. You remember that you are a chosen generation. You remember that you're a holy nation. You remember the spiritual blessings that are yours because they don't change. In fact, you can't even change them. They're established by God. Those are your spiritual blessings in Christ. So Peter explains, here's how you come to spiritual blessing, and here's the spiritual blessings you enjoy. And he says one last thing. He speaks about commemorating your belief in blessing. Commemorating belief in blessing. That is to acknowledge it, to celebrate it, to proclaim it. See, observing the blessings that are ours by coming to Jesus, living in those blessings, acknowledging those blessings, recognizing those blessings, drives our hearts to the point of worship where we want to worship even in the midst of suffering because we understand the blessings that are ours through Jesus. We live committed lives of worship when we understand the blessings that are ours. And Peter mentions two forms of worship that we are to offer. Verse 5 is one of them. There he says, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Offering up spiritual sacrifices. When you understand what it means to come to genuine belief in Christ and you recognize the spiritual blessings that are yours through Jesus, you have a heart of worship that will drive you to offer up spiritual sacrifices to your Lord daily. Spiritual sacrifices. That's the duty of a priest, to offer sacrifices. Priests were set aside for the service of God, and a lot of that service involved offering up sacrifices to God. Now, you're not about to go and kill a lamb or cut up a bull and throw it on an altar and set it on fire. You're not going to offer up that kind of sacrifice. You're going to offer up a, a spiritual sacrifice, a sacrifice of worship. Now, the Bible refers to multiple different sacrifices that are spiritual sacrifices, the one we think of immediately, I'm sure your mind has already gone to, is what Paul says in Romans 12, where he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. What's a spiritual sacrifice I present? My body, that is my life, my human faculties, my human abilities, my physical possessions, my time, my energy, the entirety of my life. I give God my heart, my mind, my body, everything I have. I present it to Him for His glory, for His use for his kingdom I give him what I have as a spiritual sacrifice the scriptures elaborate even further in Hebrews 13 it talks about praise being a form of sacrifice given to God as we gratefully declare God's graciousness his attributes his works as we pay back to him through praise what he's done that same chapter talks about good works as we use our actions, our attitudes, and our words to honor God and serve Him, advance His kingdom, and we present that work to Him as a sacrifice, honoring to Him. Romans 15 talks about converts being sacrifices to God. That is, as we share the gospel and someone comes to faith, it's almost as if we're lifting them up on an altar saying, Jesus, I declared your gospel, and here's the product of that. I present this convert, this saved soul to you. In the Gospels, Jesus presented his teachings on prayer and taught his disciples that prayer can 
become a form of worship and sacrifice before God as you're lifting your hearts to the Lord in communion with Him and you're presenting worship to Him through prayer. He talks about in those Gospels love and presenting love as a sacrifice. And as you become a conduit of Christ's love and into the lives of others, how love becomes a presentation of sacrifice and worship. And on and on the Scriptures go. We could spend all day talking about it. The reality is this. When I encounter when I encounter genuine belief, when I come to real belief in Christ and I come to know the spiritual blessings, I live a life of worship where I just want to offer everything back to my Lord, whatever it is, for His glory. That's spiritual sacrifice. Giving it all back to Jesus for His use, for His glory. And Peter mentions one other thing there in verse 9. He says, proclaiming the praises of of him, that is Jesus, proclaiming the praises of Jesus or proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. When I come to a genuine faith and I come to understand the spiritual blessings that God imparts to me through Christ, it should lead me to proclaim the praises of Jesus, to proclaim his excellencies. Now that word proclaiming there is very interesting. If you look it up in the Greek, you find that it can mean to publish or to advertise or to make a complete proclamation. And there's the key. When I encounter Christ in a life transformational way and I come to understand the blessings that are mine through Christ, I want to make a complete proclamation of what Jesus has done in my life. A complete proclamation. That is a full acknowledgement to anyone who will listen. We are to make a full proclamation of Christ's power to forgive sins, to impart salvation, to transform lives. We are to advertise among every lost person we encounter the loving fulfillment of God's redemptive plan in Christ and what Christ can do in their life. We are to make a complete proclamation of who Jesus is. And you know, my friends, when we come to Jesus in genuine belief, we are redeemed from sin and parted with eternal life. We come to understand the spiritual blessings that are ours in heavenly places through Christ Jesus. And we do not proclaim that to others. There is something wrong. And what is wrong is not with the other people. And what is wrong is not with our Savior. What is wrong is you and I. When we fail to proclaim the praises, the excellencies of our Lord Jesus who has imparted these spiritual blessings to us. We are called to make a complete proclamation of all that Jesus has done to anyone who will listen. So here we sit today. The question before us begins with this. Do I believe that Jesus is real and acknowledge him? Or have I come to genuine belief where I have personally responded to him? And if I have personally responded to Jesus, Am I mindful of the spiritual blessings that are mine in heavenly places? The realities of God's grace imparted to me that cannot change, that cannot be taken away? And do I allow those things to impart peace 
to me? Do I allow those things to bring joy to my heart, even in the midst of difficulties? Do I allow those things to drive me to present spiritual sacrifices and proclaim Jesus to others? So where are you at today? Where are you at? Be honest with yourself. Say, self, where am I at today? Well, I acknowledge Jesus, but I've never really given my life to him. You need to do that today. You don't need to wait. Because you are appointed to doom if you fail to do so. Maybe yourself is saying, well, look, I've come to genuine belief. I know I have. But I have allowed the world to overshadow or cloud my remembrance of the spiritual blessings that are mine and it's robbed me of my joy, it's robbed me of my worship and I want it back. So today you go before the Lord and say, Jesus, I need you. I want it back. Maybe you're like, look, I'm doing pretty good. I know I'm a born again believer and I'm mindful of these blessings that are mine. Okay, well here's the question. Are you proclaiming the praises of the one who brought you the blessing? Do those who live in your household, do those who live in your neighborhood, do those who work with you, do those who go to school with you, do they know why you have joy? Do they know why you have peace? Do they know why you can face difficulties with a smile on your face and a joy in your heart? Do they know? Are you proclaiming the praises of the one who makes it possible? Where are you at today? I'm going to have a word of prayer and I'm just going to open up the altars for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask now that you would speak to our hearts, that you would bring comfort to those who need comfort, that you would challenge those who need to be challenged, that you would draw us into your presence as only you can. Lord, I pray that you would, you would just draw us to encounter you so that we leave here today closer to you than we walked in. Lord, as we enter this time of invitation, I ask that your spirit would just move among us that each individual person will encounter you as they need to encounter you. And Lord, I pray you give them the boldness to respond to you. In the name of Jesus.